Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And this episode is significant. One, it's the 25th episode of season seven. So as you follow the podcast, you know that the 25th episode is usually the last episode of the season. Uh, It doesn't mean that I'm going to take a long break or anything like that. It just means... You know, we're going to be starting the next episode is going to be season eight. Um, So wanted to do that. But the reason why I wanted to highlight it this time is the fact that starting with season eight, I'm going to start doing something to uh, reward people who want to subscribe through Patreon. Um, And that's kind of do like some little mini moments with, with Eric Fleming and, and kind of get back to the roots of uh, how I started this podcast, which was basically when I was Ubering in Atlanta and just listening to Donald Trump and I would just pull over and just record my thoughts. Um, so, you know, instead of having to wait a week to, you know, address the issue or whatever, I think, you know, that's, that's going to be a bonus. So all it takes is a dollar to subscribe and you will get, um, um, you know, those little mini moments uh, that I'm going to start with season eight uh, to just kind of address issues that uh, are happening, you know, right then. Now, you know, I may, if I have a hot mic moment, I'll elaborate on maybe some things that I talk about, uh, but, to kind of stay current with certain things. And also too, I'm trying to figure out and organize a clubhouse. Um, so if you go to a clubhouse and look for a moment with Eric Fleming, uh, you know, you can sign up for that and then, you know, we can, we can go ahead and have a clubhouse to address some issues and, and hopefully like some previous guests, uh, you know, get them to come and, you know, kind of talk about issues. We'll just throw an issue out there and I'll try to get experts to come on and, 
you know, we'll have a discussion and, and people can listen in real time to, to experts instead of having to wait for them to come on the show. Right. So that's a couple of things I want to do. Um, starting with season eight, you know, utilize the clubhouse, um, you know, uh, give you something uh, nice for your subscription for Patreon, all that kind of stuff. But today I've got three guests coming on. Two of them are going to be together. Um, and so the first one is going to be solo. And it's this guy named J.J. Carell. And uh, J.J. has written a book, and I'll get into that in the introduction. But one of the things I have tried to stress on this podcast is that this is going to be a, a place where people can express their views, whether I agree with them or not. And if I feel I need to address it, you know, something, you know, it's my show, so I can take some time, <laughs> you know, to address it. But I want people to feel comfortable coming on this podcast and saying what they what they really feel, what they know. And, you know, we'll have a little banter and the way I'll try to ask questions, you know, we'll, we'll address some pushback or whatever. But what I really want this to be a venue for people to hear other opinions that they may not agree with or may not, you know, understand. And Brother Carell falls in this category on the issue of immigration. And when I read his intro, I think you'll understand before you hear the interview kind of where his perspective is. Because my very first guest was a sister named Tamina Watson, who is an immigration attorney. And so you heard that side of it. And you, if you know anything about me, you know that I've done that kind of work. Well, now we've got somebody who uh, has looked at it from a different perspective. And they've written a book. And, and uh, I am honored that they decided to want to come on my podcast and, and talk about it. So J.J. Carell recently retired from the United States Border Patrol after a 24-year career as a deputy patrol agent in charge. Carell brings a different view on immigration and what is now transpiring on this forgotten and unknown place called the border. Carell supervised an ATV unit on the San Diego-Tijuana border during the most violent times in recent Border Patrol history. He created the most successful maritime narcotic and human smuggling unit in the Border Patrol. Five years as the supervisor of this unit called the Coastal Border Enforcement Team, or CBET, his unit arrested and seized numerous Sinaloa cartel narcotic loads, and one of his agents testified against and helped secure a conviction against Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo. Carell's unique perspective is from years as a frontline journeyman agent to a senior leader in the United States Border Patrol. Carell uses his experience to artic articulate who has created this disastrous situation on the border, how these policies are being enacted, and why these intentional policies are being implemented in his new book, Invaded, the in Intentional Destruction of the American Immigration System. Carell takes his 24 years of experience in the trenches and it's time and leadership roles to outline solutions. 
Corel Solutions to stop the invasion of millions of individuals from across the globe from illegally entering America are straightforward and direct as sovereignty is paramount to the continued greatness of the United States of America. Corel is unapologetically patriotic and believes in the greatness of America and her citizens. However, he is unafraid to point out the corruption and deception that is ruling decisions made about the border, illegal immigration, and the weakening of America's sovereignty. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Mr. J.J. Carell. All right, J.J. Carell, how you doing, brother? You doing good? I'm doing good, Eric. How you doing today? I'm doing fine. Um, it's always good to talk to somebody else in law enforcement. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the fact that you have written this book called Invaded, uh, you know, this is an interesting subject matter. Uh, as I said in the intro, you have been with the Border Patrol uh, 24 years, right? Yes. Yep, that's correct. I retired two years ago. Yeah. And uh, was this the only law enforcement job you did or did you do something prior to 97? Uh, No, that's my first job. I graduated uh, college in 92, tried to play professional football and didn't work out. And then I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps. My father's a Secret Service agent. I knew I didn't want to do that per se, but uh, I wanted to find that camaraderie and and uh, a more noble cause and greater than than myself. As a big sports fan, what team did you try out for? Uh, you know, when I came out of college, there was nothing but the NFL and CFL. There was nothing else. Uh, so I tried out and went to, to various regional camps and, and tryout camps and just never caught on. But, um, you know, no, I, my, my motto kind of in my life is try not to have any regrets. I know as we get older, we're always going to have regrets, but I try to minimize them. So at least I tried, right? I never want to go when I'm 80 years old and wonder, man, should I have tried to do that? So just like writing my book, I believe that, um, I don't want to sit on the sidelines and watch. I want to get involved, even if that means I fail or I struggle. Yeah, well, you know, nothing fails but a try. And judging from your description of yourself in the book, I would assume that you were like a linebacker or safety or something like that, right? Uh, I was absolutely the opposite. I was a quarterback. Really? Uh, that that Yeah, that's such a – it's such a barbaric sport. I can't imagine – wanting to do anything else uh, <laughs> except play quarterback. I used to watch those guys hit each other all practice long and think, why would anybody do this? Uh, it was difficult enough playing quarterback. And, you know, in summer, we'd have those three-a-days back when I grew up. Uh, we didn't have a lot of the water. If you needed water, you were considered weak. That's how crazy it was back then. <laughs> I understand. But even, yeah, but even I remember playing and just going, in summer in August, while all my friends were playing in the pool and swimming in the ocean, I was out on the field and I was like, what am I doing here? But then Friday nights, Saturday nights come and there's a reason why, because it's so exhilarating. Well, one of my good friends, one of my former colleagues who ended up being Speaker of the House in Mississippi, he was a quarterback, too. Um, really? As a matter of fact, playing? he 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 uh, actually 
went to Baylor and then tragedy happened in his family, ended up coming back home to Mississippi and playing at Mississippi College. Uh, okay. I, I think yeah. it I think it worked out better for him anyway, because uh, Baylor <laughs> Baylor was a, a, a wishbone offense and he wasn't that good of a runner, <laughs> so right. it kind of worked out better for him to come on home. Oh, that's great. All right. So normally when I get somebody on, I try to uh, use a quote, either something that they said or something that you know relates to the work that they're doing or whatever. So I got this quote from your book and, and, and it really, it really kind of encapsulizes how you tell your story and, and push your, uh, uh, gives your basis for your viewpoint on, on this subject of immigration. So let me read this to you and, and let you respond to it. Okay. The, the border is a living and breathing creature with a personality that is heartless and brutal for both the criminals crossing the border and for the law enforcement agents protecting America. The border's appearance is harsh, dirty, and unsophisticated. The border loves violence and encourages the worst in people. Expound on that for me. When people talk about the border, Eric, they talk from it, talk about it from a, a very uh, standoffish perspective, meaning they like to come in with their video cameras, try to get a couple pictures and leave. And it's very, very rare uh, to find an investigative reporter that will embed themselves into the chaos, which I don't see hardly ever. When you're down on the border, it is almost as I described in my book, it's like you go to a different planet. I remember being on the border in San Diego and looking out into, I could see the skyline of San Diego, Point Loma, uh, Coronado Bays. These are multi-million dollar houses uh, on large plots of land facing the ocean. Some of them right on the cliffs looking over in the ocean. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful skyline in San Diego. And right to my back, literally as I'm standing there, is a rusted Vietnam metal, a metal fence from Vietnam that they brought over to construct some type of barrier. The border is, it, it makes, it brings out the absolute worst in every human being. And it's something you had to fight as a law enforcement officer, because when you stepped on that, it was like you we were talking about playing sports. You talk on, you, you, you walk onto that sporting event, ours is like a battle. So when we drive out there and get on that border, it was as if I, I transported myself to some other reality. It was bizarre in a way. Um, the smells were different. The, the pollution from Tijuana would find its, just seep over the border a little bit. The sky would turn orange from the pollution and the heavy uh, fog and, and, and uh, smog. And the people that are on the border, I'm not talking about the people that are moving themselves or goods across the border legally and, and through commerce. I'm talking about the, the smugglers and the, the illegal aliens that are criminal aliens that the vast majority that I arrested in my career and the Border Patrol. It was a toxic miss, mix where the only the strong survived. It, it, it truly was. And the border, the terrain is so dangerous 
there's rocks and crevices and deep canyons and oceans and rivers and uh, very heavy, thick brush. So you agents were always getting hurt, always. Uh, tore my shoulder, I, I smashed my head, I broke my knee in, 20, in, in, in 24 years. Guys had their heads caved in from rocks being thrown at them from the south side. And the only thing, and I describe this in my book, the, everybody got preyed on in the border, okay? I'm talking, if you were a smuggler, Border Patrol was praying for you, coming, coming after you. If you were the smuggler, you were preying on the illegals. But the terrain, the actual border felt as if it was alive and it would, it would devour you. And the, the border hated and I, and I talk about it strange because you'll hear me talk about the border as a person, like it, I'm talking about a living being. The border couldn't stand. They hated the weak more than anything because it would devour the weak. So you had people crossing that were meek human beings. I'm not saying bad. I'm just saying they were physically weak and their spirit was weak and their physicality was weak. The border just devoured them, just devoured them. And when I say that it is, it is violent, you can't imagine the, the hopelessness, the devastation, the, the desperation that is felt on the border. Um, it's very hard to articulate unless you've gone down there and, and felt it because there is a feeling to being on the border and Nothing seems, nothing seems normal. It, it's very hard. Like I said, it's hard to, to articulate. And like I write in the book, as, as crazy as those, that place was, I thrived in it. And I don't know if that's good or bad or maybe a little bit of both for me, but I did. I thrived in that environment, that chaotic, strong, uh, Am I going to get out of here alive type of environment? And I'm not being dramatic in it. This is, I ran many, many big units and ATV units, and it was um, challenging. Uh, it was not just physically challenging. It was very mentally, spiritually uh, challenging as well. So in that answer, you, you um, provoked a couple of questions. You talk about how, and you do an excellent job, I want to say, in the book, in, in painting that picture about the border. So as challenging as the border it is, is itself, do you think that we should be taking extreme measures like placing barbed wire and circular saw blades and buoys in the Rio Grande? Do you think that we should be separating parents from children? But if if the the, the the natural terrain is such a challenge for both officers and people trying to get in do do we need to do anything more extreme to try to control that i believe yes and let me explain and i think it's very important that we make it a very clear distinction about what we're talking about i'm not talking about legal immigration i'm absolutely for legal immigration. I love it. I think uh, the vast majority of people that naturalize and become U.S. citizens are some of the greatest citizens that are in America because they have been on the other side and they've seen 
that the other side is horrible. And they come to America and they embrace and they love and they cherish and they, and they appreciate it. So I'm not speaking about legal immigration. I'm speaking solely on illegal immigration. And my, my bigger, there's so much to unpack there where you ask, do we need this? I'll give you two examples. One, in San Diego, I talked about the Vietnam landing. So they took landing mat, steel landing mat from Vietnam and pieced it together and made a wall. It's about maybe 15 feet high, but they put it horizontally, right? So instead of vertically, so you had roofs in the panels. So they're able to walk up and go over. So it was very quick. They throw ladders up and they go. And we would get hurt. We get we get thrown uh, bricks, uh, concrete with rebar in it, and and hit us. And it it was horrible. It was violent. Guys would get very very hurt and disfigured. So we had a chief named Mike Fisher, great man, very intelligent, very smart. Ends up being the chief of, of the whole United States eventually. He puts razor wire up and down eleven miles of the border where I worked. It shut things down almost overnight. It was amazing. Now, the bigger picture that we're talking about, separating families, doing all this, the reason why we have this chaos in our country is because our politicians, both sides, have allowed this intentional destruction of the American immigration system. And when you have chaos, you're going to have deaths. We are, we are, last year, we had over 840 people die on our side, not the South side, which is tens of thousands. But on our side, almost a thousand people died in America crossing the border. We're not even, I can go in later with you about the enormous amounts of rapes and sexual abuse of children and women coming across and in our country as well. We have allowed this to happen. In order, America is built on opportunity and freedom, right? Everybody wants it. I want it. You want it opportunity freedom, but it's all based on the foundation of law and order. If you do not have law and order, you have chaos, and chaos does not breed opportunity and freedom because somebody's always stealing it, and there's chaos. Because we are having these deaths, and because of separations, and on and on, the first question everyone asks is, why are we doing it? Why, why, do, why don't we make it a, an easier pathway? Okay. I, let's say that I agree with you, Eric, that we need to have an easier pathway. And let's say that you say that we need 20 million people, right? Business-wise, whatever, 20 million people. Okay. I let you bring in 20 million people a year. Fine. I don't care. 20 million. What are you going to do about the other billions that are going to make their way to America? There's over 4 billion people live in absolute extreme poverty. The reason why you're seeing the numbers that you're seeing Two, 250,000 people a month are crossing the border and, and being arrested is because the cartels are only allowing, in coordination with the Mexican government, are only allowing the, that many people to come across at a time. That's it. So it's a steady stream. So my, my ultimately, my answer to you, Eric, is if we are going to have a nation, a nation is founded by their borders, if you do not have sovereignty, you do not have a nation. I am for order, law and order, and I'm in also in favor of protecting legal immigrants that come here. Now, I hope that we can segue into this uh, somewhere down the line in our conversation, but because it has to be understood that 
these illegal aliens that are coming across the border and being, we're welcoming them in as quote asylees. They all become out of status and illegal aliens, all of them, because the system is so broken. Our government knows this. So these millions, and it's millions, not thousands, millions of these people that are coming across and get, I mean, granted uh, or, or been allowed to claim asylum fraudulently by our government will all time out out of status and turn into illegal aliens. And here's something that you need that I, I want your audience to understand. And when you connect the dots, all of these people that are being brought in and put on asylum and they're put on the court docket, the court dockets now are not, you can't see a judge until 2027. In some major cities like New York City, you can't see an immigration judge to 2032, okay? You come across, you said families and separation. We don't separate families. That's a whole nother discussion. But those people that we release and you can't see a judge to 2027, 2032, you know what we don't give them, Eric? We don't give them a work authorization document. We don't allow them to work in America legally. Why would you do that? You brought these people in. You set them up knowing that they're never going to see the judge, and they have no way to work legally. So what we have created as a society, as a government, is if you think of a baseline of employer employees in America, Underneath us are millions of men and women that are slaves because they're working for slave labor. They have no recourse. They have nothing. So if I go and I want to work as a roofer or I want to work in agriculture and I'm going to get paid $7 an hour, $5 an hour, and then if I'm the employer and I don't want to pay you, you have no recourse. If I want to work you 70 hours a week, you have no recourse. I don't have to pay you. I don't have to pay you time and a half. I don't have to give you breaks. I don't have to do anything. I can abuse you. This is how immoral our immigration system is and how immoral our government is. So I want to get into that. I want to get into, because I'm, I'm really, you know, trying to get to solutions, but I want to, yes. I want to, hit a hit a couple of things um so we can kind of get um uh, an understanding so if somebody picks up the book they have a clear understanding so one of the terms that you yes. use is illegal alien so my question yes. what first question to you is which phrase is more accurate illegal alien or undocumented in, uh, immigrant before you answer that let me throw in another one you asserted in your introduction that you will address uncomfortable topics that, quote unquote, will result in screams of racism. What yes. in your experience makes you believe that people will react that way? So first question, okay. which is a more accurate phrase, illegal alien or undocumented immigrant? And second question, why do you think people will take what you say as racism? Okay. First, illegal alien is a legal term. It is in the immigration law and it's and what you use uh, in descriptions in court. And I, I don't find that racist at all, at all or inconvenient. This is what society uses, the globe uses, that you're, you're an alien. If you're an alien, meaning you're coming in from a foreign nation, if you're illegal, then you're an illegal alien. Undocumented means nothing to me because 
all of them have documentation of some sort, federal ID, birth certificate, something, right? Driver's license. So they're not undocumented. I think that's, I think language is very important. I'm a big, strong believer in words. Words have great power and meaning, can uh, used as weapons as well, right? Um, but I think if we're going to have an honest intellectual conversation, then I think we just call things for what they are and not try to make them uh, more palatable for everybody. This is what they are. Now, when I say it's going to scream of racism, I talk about demographic shifts in America, right? And that's the first thing, and I'm a white man, if, if people are just listening. Um, I'm a white man. I grew up, I was born in Massachusetts, but I grew up in the deep south, Louisiana, Alabama, went to college in Arkansas. Whatever that may mean, context to people, I understand sometimes people just say, oh, you're a big white guy from the south. And when I talk about demographics, people immediately go to, well, you're a xenophobe, you're a racist, you just want white people. And I always combat that with, okay, hold on. I'm Number one, I'm not going to uh, argue that I'm not a racist. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Number one, I'm not a racist and I don't need to articulate to you why I'm not. However, when I talk about demographic shift, Eric, I'm not talking about ethnic or racist, racial demographic shifts. I'm talking demographic shifts of citizens versus non-citizens, because what I don't, a lot of people don't know this fact. There are 195 nations, countries on planet, on planet Earth. The Border Patrol has arrested over 175 foreign nationals from these countries. So this is not about Mexican nationals. Mexican nationals make up less than 50%. They're the majority minority in the arrest totals. So we're talking about individuals from every walk of life, from every corner of the globe. So I know coming from my, my perspective, uh, coming from, I'm very opinionated uh, about this. However, um, what is written in my book, I stand firmly by it because it's heavily researched. It's off of my experience as well and my contacts in the Border Patrol daily and ICE. And it's not what I believe or what I feel or what I hope is going to happen. This is, I'm just telling you the truth. And I have pages of footnotes where I, where you can go and fact check me. In fact, I, I encourage everyone to fact check everything I say. All right. So you make a lot of assertions in the book, uh, to follow up on what we were just talking about. You, you make an assertion that immigrants do not share our values in our beliefs. What what do you mean by Illegal. that? Illegal aliens. Okay, what what so what's the distinction between somebody that's illegal and then somebody that's legal as far as values someone, and beliefs? Well, someone that's legal, number one, they they cherish and believe in America, so they follow the law. So they actually their first their first contact with America was they did it the right way. Illegal aliens' first contact with America is to say, go pound sand, I'll do whatever I want and break into your country. And that's number one. Number two, it shows, and I put this in my book, illegal aliens, number one, 50% of them are illiterate in their own language. Half of those, all of them, or a vast majority of all of them have less than eighth grade education, barely get to high school. They have no idea. They don't share our language. 
their customs are completely different. They believe in uh, they live they believe in communism and, and socialism because that's where they're coming from. They they don't understand our our form of government, which is a republic. Their form of government is uh, a democracy type where the powerful rule and then you protest and overrun and and chaos. Okay. So when I say they don't share our same values, they don't share our same values. Crime is rampant. Pedophilia is rampant. Latin America, South America, the, the, the age of consent is around in their mind 12 or 13 because they need to get rid of their women. They're not, they're not producing. I've seen it throughout my career. People coming in saying, well, that's my wife. And I'm looking, your wife's 13 years old, dude, you're 25. Yep. That's my wife. So, when, I, when you bring in the totality of what illegal immigration brings in, it's incompatible. You can't. I cannot have, for example, take New York City as 100,000 illegal aliens that have been brought in to New York City. New York City's social services are crashed. They cannot. Mayor Adams, who's a, a, a dem, hard left Democrat, said, I can't take one more. It's all downhill from here because they're trying to educate these these children that are now going to schools, but now they have like a hundred different languages. How, how, how are we, how are we going to do that? How's that going to, how's that going to meld into America? How's that going to make America better? And I just have a very uh, strong held belief that, and, and history says it, that you cannot have this level of demographic shift and your country sustain itself and remain what it is. And I'll give you an example. CIS.org, Center for Immigration Studies, has been around for forever. Nobody even disputes their data. Their head dem demographer and head researcher did a white paper in March and published it. And then it found that from the census of 2016 to the census of 2022, in those five years, because that was the latest data they could get, they found that the total American population growth, total, 77% of that growth came from foreign national illegal aliens and their children. How is that beneficial to America? How is that beneficial to any nation on planet Earth? It's not. Mexico, Uzbekistan, Ecuador, Japan, none of those nations, China, would ever allow their population growth to explode and be 77% of not their nationals. It's just incompatible. We cannot sustain this. All right. So the the other assertion that, you know, because, man, time is running away. I knew who was going to do that. Um, you, you, you assert that uh, the Trump administration had the lowest numbers of daily arrests in Border Patrol history. So when I pulled up yes. the numbers, it showed fiscal year 19, it was around 20, little over 2,600 daily. Uh, fiscal year 20, it was a little over 1,200 daily. Then we go into fiscal year, and for those of you who don't understand, the fiscal year starts in October of the, the year previous. So when I say fiscal year 21, that means it starts October 20. Uh, fiscal year 21, 4,700 daily. Fiscal year 22, 6,500 daily. So 
that assertion on the numbers wise seems correct, but something happened in, in 2020 called a pandemic. Do you, do you think it was the policies of the administration that led to these low arrests or it was more of an outside force? And then we kind of got some blowback after the world said that we were, we could live with this virus. We could coexist with this virus. Yeah. Well, no, I think this is a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Okay, so you have to go back and and, and remember when we we because I'm, I'm a Republican, I, I I vote Republican because I have to. I don't trust them as much as I trust the Democrats. So that being said, you go back to 2016. Trump wins. We we the Republicans had the House and the and the Senate and the presidency, and this is where I I, I show that they're it's a uniparty. So Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell refuse, absolutely refuse to fund Trump's border wall. Trump has to go around, go to the defense budget and pull $5 billion from the defense budget. Okay, so for about two years, Trump is fighting his own party. I remember being a border patrol agent at that time and going, losing my mind. Like I'm down on the border. I'm supervising as a, a senior leader and guys are getting hurt because my my own party will not fund me correctly. And I can't, I, I hate those men. I, I hate's a strong word, but I do. I hate those men because I have men that was under my supervision and women that were hurt, that some have killed themselves because of the frustration and anger that they felt. But when you look at what Trump did, Trump, I will say, was the greatest border president in my 24-year career. Now, let me explain. He didn't just take the stance on let's build a wall, which I believe you have to have. He didn't just say, okay, build a wall, we're going to stop it. He went down to the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, along with Mexico, and said, you will no longer allow caravans to come up into our country, through your country, into America, and you will stand up your military, your border patrol, whatever you need to do to stop it. And if you don't, I'm going to withhold foreign aid to you. Now, all those nations need our money or they will collapse. So those nations were so used to dealing with impotent and corrupt politicians that they kind of laughed. And then one day Trump said, okay, all of it's off, spigots turned off. And within seconds, they healed. And they said, yes, sir, what do you need, sir? And all of a sudden, with that, with the combination of the wall, we started to close the border. I make the assertion within six to nine months, if Trump had a second term, our border would be completely closed down. Let me give you, let me give you data. So toward the end of Trump's uh tenure or term, I would get the 24-hour reports all across the nation, northern, south, uh, east and west coast borders. We were arresting, Eric, between 150 to 400 people a day. That's nothing. I mean, that's a nothing. Even 2,000 a day is a nothing, right? There's 2,000 miles on the southern border. It's a nothing. The moment Biden gets in office, my data reports jumped over 5,000. And three to four to 5,000 getaways, meaning people that jumped the border fence and absconded. Let me give you another example of how people ask me, well, give me an example of the difference between, you can go back to Obama, Bush, Clinton, all the presidents I served under. On the border, I arrested directly or indirectly being a supervisor and manager thousands, tens of thousands of individuals, enormous amounts of people. 
Do you know, Eric, how many people that I let walk out the door, that meaning I didn't return to Mexico or deport to Uzbekistan or wherever? Zero. Never, never. Right now, in 30 months since Biden's taken office, he has, meaning the Border Patrol and ICE, arrested over up to 7 million people. 7 million. That's a staggering number. Almost all of them he has released. Out the door, released. So for all of this time, up until Biden takes office, nobody releases anyone, and he's releasing millions. This is why I go to the title of my book, The Intentional Destruction of the American Immigration System. This is completely and utterly intentional and purposeful. I believe that. All right. So let's close with a counter because I want to okay. I want to counter what you're saying based on something that President Biden has put out. And then I want you to rattle off some things that need to be done. So okay. according according to uh, President Biden, uh, he has set aside $25 billion to uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, what we know as ICE. Uh, and, they, and they claim that's an increase of $800 million over the last budget. Uh, it includes funds to hire an additional 350 Border Patrol agents, although the agency itself says it needs 1,000. Uh, $535 million for border security technology at and between ports of entry. $40 million to combat fentanyl trafficking and disrupt transnational criminal organizations. And funds to hire an additional 460 people uh, that are determined as processing assistance at CBP and ICE. Um, right now, the Border Patrol, for those who don't know, is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. It's in the federal government. Now, there's 19,357. And again, the agency says they need a thousand more. Uh, that equates to about 10 agents per square mile of the southern border. Now, I know not every agent is going to be right on the border, but just dealing with math. In comparison, when you talk about all the police officers in the United States, uh, there's four officers per square mile. So outside of the agency saying they need more and the president is saying, well, I put $25 billion in to at least increase it by $350, one, because you make an assertion that morale is totally gone in the department. Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to assume that you're going to say that $25 billion, ain't nobody seen it and nothing's going on. But what needs Correct. to be, you know, so do you refute that? And uh, what needs to be done? Just just give me some bullet points because, okay. we, you know, we're pressed for time, unfortunately. Okay. Number one, I, I don't trust anything that this administration says. Let's say that when you look deeper into these spending bills, you can, they have, they have asterisks by majority of that money that you just, numerated out, where they always say in the asterisk, I can move, meaning the government, I can reallocate these funds as I see fit. And that's how they do it. So right now, he's also proposing several billion dollars to build temporary housing in America to house illegal aliens as they wait for asylum. 
as homelessness has now skyrocketed in the United States of America. So I don't believe any of that. You need 350 agents. Actually, you need you have a 5,380 mile border in the northern border. They have they have four times the arrests in nine months that they've had in the last four years up there. Our East Coast and West Coast is wide open. So you need way more than 350. The Border Patrol is going to say whatever their brass is going to say, whatever Mayorkas tells you to say. The highest when I was in the Border Patrol was about 21,000. We're down to about, you said 19. My numbers are saying around 18.5. So we're about 3,000 from our height. The 350, they can't even hire 350. Nobody wants to do this job. No one wants to get in law enforcement anymore. So I, I dispute those. I dispute everything that he says, Biden says when it comes, because let's just, before I go into my solutions real quick, let's say that he's Biden is completely on the up and up and he actually knows what day of the week it is. And he's absolutely sharp and knows what he's saying. It does not matter, Eric, because they're allowing people in. You have the CPP one app, you have the parole, they've abused the parole. There's asylum, there's catch and release. There is right now, as you and I are speaking, Eric, there are hundreds of miles where there's not one single border patrol agent. You said 10, 10 per mile. I'm telling you from my sources, seeing investigative reporters, there's hundreds of miles where there's not one border patrol agent patrolling because they're they're processing and releasing. Our nation is completely vulnerable, which brings you to my, my, it's my last chapter of my book. Because I like you, I like solutions. I don't want to just be the guy that's banging against the wall and calling this guy, he sucks, and that guy can't do anything. Well, what's your what's your solution? My solution, and, and I, I lay it out to 11 items, and, I, I, and they're not trigger, meaning they're done all immediately. The first thing I do is I put the military on the border, and I shut the border down completely, wall it off. Army Corps of Engineers, I want that wall built immediately. So let me stop you real I, quick. Yes. You're talking about shutting down the most active border on the planet, just shutting it down altogether. I'm, That's the most traffic. No, I'm talking. Go ahead. Not the, not the port of entries. Okay. Not the port of entries. Now, if, if if we're if I'm getting like they do in El Paso and sometimes they do in San Isidro, which is in California, if they bum rush, put a thousand people and try to bonsai the port, yeah, the port gets shut down. America has to have sovereignty, so. I, I close the border. I build the wall. I get the same time. I am going to, I'm going to let everyone in the DHS system that has been fraudulently let in in the system, you are now deportable and you will be deported. I will institute deportations. I will institute E-Verify. I will also, I will also force the Northern, Northern Triangle nations in Mexico to not allow and not give out visas for people to pour into their country, into America. All the things that have already been done. Now, once all that's done and I have those people out of my country and I'm moving through my immigration law and cleaning out all the crazy loopholes and making it secure, then we're gonna have a discussion of what is right for America, employees first, then employers, and what do we need in America? Is it more nurses? Is it more janitorial service? Is it more uh, computer programs? What is it? And then I will craft our immigration system to be more broad, to allow more people in if that's what America wants. And I think that's reasonable. I'm not trying to stop people from coming into America. I'm just saying there must be a legal means of doing it. And whatever that number is, 
that we all decide through our representative government and they vote on and make it law, then that's fine. But when you tell me that you can only bring in 1.2 million people legally, which we do every year, and then you, then I go enforce those laws as a Border Patrol agent, and then AOC, Paul Ryan's, all those people say, well, you're a racist and a Nazi. Hold on a second. I am enforcing the law that you voted in Congress. Why have you not changed it? Because they know that America will never stomach as the dollars crashing, unemployment's rising, homelessness is skyrocketing, we can't buy homes, the economy's, you're gonna allow 30 more million people into America? No, not gonna happen. Why don't we take care of Americans first? And that's why they use illegal immigration. I think it's very simple. I think, why can't we take care of our brothers and sisters in America? Why is that so difficult? Why are we sending billions of dollars, trillions of dollars overseas? Why are we allowing people into our nation that are gonna be completely dependent on our social services when we can't even take care of our own brothers and sisters in America? And I think that's a reasonable request. Well, I wish we had time to answer all those questions. We don't, uh, but uh, I would love to uh, continue the dialogue with you. Uh, and if people want to get a copy of your book, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, the best way is just go to jjcarroll.com. And I have a, a link on there to buy the book. And as well, if you have follow up questions or, or things that you would like to just have a discussion with me, you can just email me. Or if you can't remember how to spell my name, just go to amazon.com and type in invaded and my book will, will pop up. And Eric, thank you so much for this opportunity. And, and thank you for the, the thoughtful questions. And I, I'll come back anytime to discuss this very, very important topic. Thank right. You. Yes, sir. And I, I appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, and uh, if you, if you, as you noticed, I don't take a lot of time trying to debate. I want my guests to say what they have to say and let my audience make the determination based on what they hear. Uh, and I encourage them to, to read the book or at least, you know, reach out to you if they have questions. So, um, but yeah, I would love to continue this because that that's an issue that I've dealt with in my uh, political career. And so uh, I look forward to that. Um, but again, thank you for coming on and, and, and sharing your viewpoints on this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. All right, guys. And we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So, <laughs> I told y'all, uh, Brother Carell has a different perspective, right, of immigration. And that was why I was explaining to him off, off air is that, you know, I'm one of those people that fight for immigrants to have rights. And, you know, I've, I've actually done work in trying to make sure that their documentation is uh, uh, proper and, and that they get through the, the system correctly. And, um, you know, and it, it really kind of shaped my mindset as far as being a candidate for the U.S. Senate, as far as throwing out ideas to fix this problem. 
And one of the things that we do agree is that for whatever reason, the United States Congress will not take the time to come up with a comprehensive bill. And I think that it is long overdue. And I think that we need to have perspectives of people like Tamina Watson. And I think we need to have perspectives from people like J.J. Carell in the room so that we can come up with a comprehensive system instead of kind of this patchwork quilt that we've been working on basically since, you know, this country has been founded. And it seems like there's always one crisis or another. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, people say, well, you know, why, why are we focused in on other countries and trying to assist them and not taking care of our own and all this stuff. And my argument has always been, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think that if the United States had done more to make sure that countries had a financial stability, that these countries were not indebted to the world bank, that these countries were allowed and given our technological uh, assistance. You know, we're doing it kind of sort of piecemeal now between NGOs and nonprofits and to some degree, the United States government. But to be honest, one of the reasons why China is attaining superpower status, if they're not considered a superpower is because they are going into countries that the United States and other European nations have, you know, when, when they were colonizing these countries, we were just, it was just a one-way relationship. We were taking resources and making money off of them. Instead of what China is doing is going into these countries and teaching people how to do X, Y, and Z, and then turning around and doing business with those countries, right? I think if the United States had done that from Jump Street, and that's why I always make the assertion that we did capitalism wrong, even though we're supposed to be the model for cap uh, capitalism, uh, we do it wrong and we need to learn how to do it right in order for everybody in this nation to benefit, but the world as a whole, right? If we're going to be the light, if we're going to be the beacon of the world, then we need to uh, make sure that everybody has a, has a fair shot of, of making that happen. And I, I, I just believe that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I believe that we can do these things because that's what we signed up for, right? Through the U.S. Constitution, through all these treaties, after all these world wars, that's what we signed up for. To, to, to be that beacon, to be that country of hope. So, but the other component in that is education. And that's what my next guests are going to talk about. Or more specifically, how one of the largest school systems in the United States is trying to alter opportunities for people to have an education um 
if you didn't catch it and, you know, with all the Trump indictment stuff, you might have missed it. But the Houston Independent School District made a decision. And the way it initially came out was that this school district was shutting down all the libraries. And people were like, what? You know, they're shutting down all the libraries and, you know, uh, they're going to turn them into detention centers, similar to like, for those of you of a certain age, you remember the Breakfast Club, right? Uh, with Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall and uh, yeah, all those, uh, Emilio Estevez, all them guys, right? Uh, yeah, y'all remember that movie. So basically, and I think they were in the library, <laughs> if I remember the movie correctly. So just imagine the Breakfast Club in in the Houston Independent School District, every school, right? That that's the the initial way the story came out. It's it's a little more precise than that. Nonetheless, it's still bad, in my opinion. So uh, what I did was I reached out to a young lady who I saw on the news, Deborah Hall, talking about it, and uh, she's part of an organization called Students Need Libraries, and she's a retired Houston. Uh, librarian. And so I reached out to her and she was like, well, you know, if I do this, I, I need some help. I said, bring all the help you want. So we also have gracing our presence, Janice Newsom, who's also a retired Houston librarian. And so uh, let me go ahead and introduce them and we'll get into the discussion about what is exactly happening in the Houston Independent School District and how we even got to this point. It's going to be eye-opening. Anyway, Deborah Hall is a retired public school librarian, a proud Texan. Uh, she works currently part-time for the Houston Community College. Uh, she's active in the Texas Library Association and the American Library Association. And she spends her free time <laughs> advocating for school libraries in Houston and volunteering in the schools. Janice Moore Newsom received a bachelor's degree from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. She earned a master's degree in early childhood education from the University of St. Thomas, Houston, Texas, and obtained an MS and PhD in library and information studies from Florida State University. She worked as an early childhood and elementary teacher before becoming a school librarian. Janice's work experience included serving students, serving the students of the Houston Independent School District in the Department of Library Services, first as a school librarian, a library special service services specialist, and as the manager of library services. Janice is the chair of the Coretta Scott King Book Awards Roundtable of the American Library Association, a newly elected ALA counselor at large, and a member of the Society for Information Technology and Teacher Education Culture and Climate Committee. Her research interests include school librarian leadership and administration, school library advocacy, diversity in literature, and technology applications. Her scholarly interest extends to the school librarian's leadership role in collection development of digital content and early literacy development. And there's a Mississippi connection in there. Anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege 
to have as guests on this podcast, Ms. Deborah Hall and Ms. Janice Newsom. All right, I have Deborah Hall and Janice Newsom. Ladies, how are y'all doing? That's fine, thank you. Could be better. We had some libraries open in Houston. Well, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up, Ms. Deborah, because that's that's what we want to talk about about these libraries, right? Um, right. So, which one of y'all want to explain exactly what has happened? Well, as as I understand it, and as I uh, do my research into what is going on in Houston, uh, schools that are designated as NES or NES affiliated will uh, eliminate the libraries for those students, and the personnel will either be reassigned or simply dismissed from the district. Those spaces will be repurposed, and there have been a number of names that have given to those spaces, uh, but essentially they are being repurposed to allow for uh, disciplined students to who, students who need discipline to be sent there or for students who are not uh, remaining on on level with their students and in the, in, with their peers in the classroom, they'll be sent there for group work or one-on-one instruction is what I have, have been told. Deborah, did you want to add well, anything? Also, Go ahead. Sure. Um, in addition to a discipline center, um, the libraries will also be tasked tasked with being spaces to hold kids that are advanced, kids that um, are uh, have reached their goals. So they'll they'll also be working in there, and that's why um, one of the reasons they they say they've targeted the libraries is because it's a nice big space, and they can put lots and lots of desks there, and cram a lot of kids in there for various reasons. Now, uh, Ms. Newsom used the term NES, and that means under this superintendent, this guy named Mark Miles, um, that means new education system. And from what I understand, there are 28 schools that signed up as NES schools. And there's an additional 57 schools that are what we say NES affiliated. Is that correct? Yes. Well, the 28 schools were actually designated. I'm not sure that they signed up for it. They were designated as low performing schools. And then the 57 are schools that opted into the program. Okay. And I, I would agree with that assessment, by the way, Ms. Newsom. So, how do we so we got here because on June the first, this guy named Mark Moraff, who's the commissioner, I guess, of the Texas Education Agency, um, decided that they wanted to take over the Houston Independent School District, right? And and they and they based it off of one school underperforming. That was the Phyllis Wheatley High School. Am I getting the story correct so far? That's correct. Um, Phyllis Wheatley was the impetus for this 
which actually began back in 2017, was the impetus for this uh, eventual takeover. Uh, but also, there is an indication that a number of schools have been underperforming uh, for more than eight, five or five to eight years, depending upon the school. And Ms. Deborah, am I correct in, in saying that what what they in the takeover, what they did was um, they kicked out all the people that the folks in Houston elected to serve on the board. And Mark Moraff had the authority to, to put his own people on that board. And then they turned around and hired Mr. Miles. Is that that correct? That's correct. Uh TEA, Texas Education Agency, is a state agency. The head of that agency is appointed by the governor. And uh, we have a Republican governor. And uh, he's You can say his name on the show. <laughs> you can say his name. As bad as yes. he, he is, you can say his name. I governor think... Abbott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it has an agenda. And it uh, doesn't seem to be very friendly to public schools. He's a pro-voucher person. And, um, so um, there's a lot of concern that this is just part of an effort uh, to take over public schools, turn them into charters. So were y'all aware that when Miles was the superintendent of the Dallas Independent School District, that Moraff was on the board at that time? Yes. They're nodding their head saying yes, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is, yes. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I found Mr. that. Excuse, excuse me, Mr. Moraff um, was one of the three super, uh, members of the Dallas board who was a, in favor of Mike Miles in his uh, administration. And he was a supporter. And that board was getting ready to fire Mr. Miles because he was very contentious. And uh, Miles resigned before he could be fired. Right. Cause so, he, yeah. Cause he was on a five-year deal and he left after three. And like you said, he, he even had one of the board members arrested, excuse me, if I'm correct on that. Because she wanted to see what was going on in a particular school, right? Yeah. All right. So this is this is who the Houston school district is dealing with, ladies and gentlemen. Just it's so a you know, continuation of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So I wanted because I'm sure there were some people like, well, who would who would in their right mind be quote unquote an education superintendent and close a library, a library, let alone 28, right? But once you understand the backstory and the politics involved, I think you, you've got a clearer picture. So the Houston Independent School District, <clears throat> excuse me, has 276 schools in it and has over 194,000 students. And most of those students are students of color. Um, but it's also the largest school district in Texas. So what kind of ripple effects do you think will happen if he is able to pull this off? If he's able to try to show some modicum of success in doing what he's doing, what would, what would happen throughout the state of Texas 
y'all believe if uh if if this goes through i personally believe that similar efforts will be enacted in other districts as well dallas has a um, history of underperforming schools as well so it's another large metropolitan area in texas and uh i would have concern that this would return to dallas um and there are other areas that I believe would be attempted to, there would be a attempt uh, to take over the schools uh, as they have done here in Houston. Um, I think that there has been a concerted effort, not just in Texas, but across the country to dismantle public education, uh, which is really unfortunate because for the least fortunate of us, there are very few instances. Uh, when it comes to uh, where they would, their children would attend school. And the other thing is that for the most part, our charter schools do not have an exemplary record either for educating students. And even the I Promise School in Ohio uh, is not faring well as a charter school. Yeah, and, that, and that's a whole other topic for another day as far as charter and and to charter or not to charter and all that stuff. Um, let me, so in the, 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 the school district issued a statement talking about that, um, what these, when, when people were challenging the notion about these being disciplinary centers, they said in a statement that they were not disciplinary centers, but they're team centers. And they said team centers in NES schools will be located in large open space spaces, centrally located within the campus. If space is limited, team centers may be established within existing libraries to best use space and existing reading resources. Team, team centers are the hub of differentiated or personalized instruction in NES or NESA campuses. Uh, and it, it goes on to say the superintendent is committed to providing for every child, yada, yada, yada. And uh, they try to talk about, uh, which you kind of alluded to, uh, Ms. Hall, about independent work for students or proficient or accelerated after direct instruction, uh, small group and paired work time for students who prefer to work with others, differentiated learning and one-on-one support. And, um, but then they also said, in addition, when necessary, the team center will provide students who are struggling or disrupting the traditional classroom environment due to discipline or behavior issues, the opportunity to get their necessary care and engagement while they access their classroom instruction remotely to ensure they do not lose even a few minutes of learning time. So based on that, I, I kind of think that it's going to be more of the latter rather than the former, that it, this, these, these are going to be detention centers, basically, uh, or the, the, the detention areas. I, I don't want to imply that as a prison, but these are going to be areas where the bad kids are going to be sent. And, and um, instead of having you know, a library to provide resources for all the students and all that, they just want to have a space because they think that there's just going to be that many kids that are going to be disruptive in the class. Am I being 
too cynical about that or is that kind of the assessment y'all both have on that? I think you're spot on as, as far as that's concerned. Um, Miles raised the flag of discipline and all of a sudden everyone's talking about the behavior of the students and what a problem it is and how unacceptable it is. And, you know, he, he enlarged it. He blew it up. And so we have to do something about this. This is a crisis. And, um, you know, of course, somebody with his military background, he wants to be in control and everything in order. So, uh, yeah, at first, that's what we were hearing only about detention. Uh, moving, you know, we need the space because we're going to be moving students out of the classroom. And they're not going to give any, you know, they're not going to be giving any trouble to the teacher. The teacher will be able to teach. And that is, you know, that's what we heard. That's how they got the name Doom, you know, Doom Room or Zoom Room, uh, because that's the emphasis. And then all this other stuff started coming out about, you know, oh, there will also be groups working on dance topics and this and, and that. Information is not forthcoming. Uh, from this administration. You really have to dig and scratch and ask and, to get more information because it's very superficial. I think when uh, people push back against the idea of uh, segregating students out of the classroom, then there had to be a better explanation of how these spaces would be used I would venture to say that in the last public town hall, our superintendent indicated that people who are in sports would say that their programs were vital. However, he did not choose to close or eliminate the PE program and put students in gymnasiums, which are already much bigger than school libraries, and you didn't have to remove any of the furniture because there is no furniture in a gymnasium and much bigger spaces than in a school library. So um, once the pushback came, I believe that there had to be some way to make it more palatable to the public. Uh, and so this strong idea that our black and brown children need to be over-disciplined is not acceptable anymore. Uh, and research indicates that our children, brown, brown and black children, are over-disciplined in the public school system. Well, you know, it's Texas. So, you know, anything dealing with sports is going to be a priority. You understand? I mean, they got TV shows about Texas sports. You know what I'm saying? So, no, they were never going to do the gymnasiums, but... Um, Ms. Newsom, you said in an interview, as a high school librarian, I was able to see students who had not gained the ability to read on level gain that ability by coming to the library and engaging in the activities that we sponsored there. When our students are denied that, it is a tremendous disservice to them. What is your greatest fear based on this decision well, to close libraries? My greatest fear is that our children are going to be left behind. We are in an information age. 
and our children are going to be denied access to information. This idea that libraries are only places for books is sorely outdated, and it is a persistent and consistent misperception of what school librarians bring to the table. We're talking about people who are fully credentialed, highly qualified educators who run very strong programs that help to develop the literacy of the students who participate in those programs. I was in a high school where we ran mock elections in the library in collaboration with the social studies department. I was in a pro in a high school where the English teachers brought their children, their students, to do their research papers and projects, where the science department could come in and help their students explore STEM careers and materials. It, this idea that it is all about just the print book is so misaligned with what is actually happening in well-resourced, and will staff school libraries. Now, I have to be honest with you. This district has a history of underfunding the libraries in black and brown areas. It has. It will understaff them and underfund them and then expect that the students are going to be able to achieve the literacy and reading abilities that we all want for them. It simply cannot happen when our children are denied the resources to do that. In a school library, students have access to a state-provided database. They actually have access to two. Because if the student has a public library card, they can access the resources of the public library as well. And our public library has really stepped up to the plate to help provide students with access by providing the link card that all students in the Houston Independent School District were able to acquire. Um, I know I'm getting really passionate about this, but to me harkens back to a time when black people were denied or forbidden from being able to read. And it does not feel good at all to have our children in 2020 going through these same kinds of oppressions. Well, well, Ms. Newsom, I, I, let, me, let me be honest with you. See, you messed up when y'all started trying to teach these kids democracy in these libraries, right? When you started teaching them how to vote and how government works and all that. There's certain people in Texas that don't really want folks <laughs> that look like us uh, to, to understand that process. So maybe that's when y'all got into trouble. I, I, I'm just saying, I don't know. Uh, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Uh, Miss, uh, Eric, can I speak to um, the sanctuary aspect of libraries? Yes, ma'am. Because Ms. Newsom uh, brilliantly covered the educational uh, value of a library, which I w would hope that most people are somewhat aware of, but they may not be aware of the sanctuary. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen the library uh, referred to as their safe space. You know, many students have a hard time finding their way in a school, especially a large urban school. 
and to have the space where they know they can go and they'll be accepted. They won't be questioned. They'll be helped. They'll be supported. And um, one of the Mr. Miles, Superintendent Miles' uh, claims is that, oh, I didn't know libraries were a sacred cow. Well, he is barbecuing that 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 cow. You know, he is tearing it apart. And it's it's so wrong. And that, and that's a and scary so that's a scary statement for anybody involved in education, especially leading a district, to publicly say that you didn't think that libraries were a sacred cow. I'm like, uh, yeah, because I mean we we have this big library in D.C. I don't know if he's aware of it, but you know, in the military, he should have some idea. There's this big building. It's right behind the U.S. Capitol, as a matter of fact. It's called the Library of Congress, and every book that's ever been written or published in the United States is in this library. So I'm like, if you know, and and I, I, if I understand the story correctly, the initial books were given by a former president, Thomas Jefferson. He basically gave his library to start the Library of Congress. So if the nation has a library, why would he not think? I, I, I well. I don't want you to read people's minds. I'm, I'm not going to get into that. Um, Frank, I think it's also important for us to note that school librarians are highly qualified educators. And to remove highly qualified educators from the campus is, is derelict. It really is. We know that the highly qualified educator makes a significant difference in the academic progress of our students. So school librarians are equivalent essentially to an administrator. See, most people don't understand this, but in order to become a school librarian, you must have a teaching certificate, have classroom teaching experience, complete a, uh, an educator-approved uh, training program, and pass a state assessment. That's the same thing that school administrators have to do. They get theirs in principalship. Librarians get theirs in librarianship. There's the exact same requirements. You hold a master's degree, and to, to negate these people to know more than the keeper of the book clerk or something, it's, it's just unconscionable. Right, because you, you, you literally is a master of library science, and I assume there's a doctoral program as well in this day and age, but, I mean, to, it's a specialized education. Yeah. So what is happening to these specialized educators now? What, what's, what has happened to these librarians that were in these NES schools? Are they, are they unemployed? Are they reassigned? What's happened to them? Some were fortunate enough to be reassigned. A few of the people that I know uh, were fortunate enough to be reassigned, and others were just out of a job. Okay. Some of them are teaching. Some of them are teaching. There's a, um, a, a class that is being required at certain levels, uh, the art of thinking, and uh, some of them are uh, moving to that. I've talked to a few librarians who have done that, who've done that, but uh, we're losing them to the suburbs. Yeah. We're looking, we're 
them to to where they'll be valued. Yeah, because that's that like like I'm saying that's a skill set, and um, you know I, I just I don't I don't get it, um, and I know y'all don't get it. So let me let me ask you this question, um, and either one of you can jump in on this one. The the president of the Houston Federation of Teachers said that this action is further fostering the school to prison pipeline. Do y'all agree with, with that assessment and why? Debbie, do you want to take that one first? <laughs> okay. Um, yes. I think that with libraries, you find other possibilities and you're limiting a child or a student's ability to search for alternatives by not having access to a place where you can go have that sanctuary and choose. And yeah, I could see that it could definitely lead kids in the wrong direction because they have less options. The other thing is that when our children are over-disciplined like that, uh, as we as potentially can happen here, uh, they enter into the um, justice system much earlier than they should have. Uh, out of school suspension, uh, sent to detention centers, which supposedly are no longer going to exist, and those detention centers will actually be on the campus. Uh, and so I do think that, and then when children are not achieving, we know that uh, students who are not reading on grade level by grade three are more likely to end up in uh, poor uh, states of life, uh, prison, not graduating from high school. So there's lots of evidence that, yes, these kinds of changes that actually harken back, I say, to Jim Crow days, uh, will have a negative impact on our students. And, you know, that was a very eye-opening thing for me when I was in the legislature because, you know, we, we you know, I, you learn how you project budgets and all that stuff. And when I found out that the formula to project prison beds was based on how many students were reading at a third grade level at third grade, um, that that blew me away. I said, so that's how we figure out how many prison beds we need because we know how many kids are not reading at a third grade level at this particular time. And, you know, so my thing is, so we need to focus more on education then, right? Instead of prisons. If if we know that that's the formula, then why aren't we trying to stop that? Why? And, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson despite his flaws, <laughs> he he basically said we need to know everything by the time we're in fourth grade. We need to know about arts and science and literature and all this stuff by the time we're 10 years old. And then we need to start working toward our craft, what we want to do in life to contribute to society. And so my thing is if 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 we if we have that understanding of education, which I don't think a lot of people do, because I think there's two different types of thought in education. There's the industrial mindset and then there's the egalitarian mindset, right? The egalitarian yeah. mindset is 
we want people to learn how to think critically, you know, whereas the, and the, the illustration I used on a superintendent education that I was not pleased with was instead of teaching kids how to follow the blocks, we need to be teaching kids to question why the blocks are configured that way. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know why, well, I do know why, but I don't understand how people in good conscience don't want citizens who are enlightened and educated, regardless of where they live or uh, what, you know, social status they have. The, the purpose of being an American to me is to have a great education. And, and I think that was shown during the reconstruction era when black legislators got in power in the Southern states and they, all those states, and it's still in the state constitutions today in those Southern states, that education was a right of, of the citizens that they had to have it. And, and it just seems like these people now, you know, Miss Hall, you blew me away when you said that the superintendent said it was a sacred cow. I just, I just, I, I it, 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 to me, that sounds like that his job is not about education. His job is about uh, controlling and, and manipulating. Can One I, of the uh, things, oh, go ahead, Deborah. Um, one of the words, which is very important to this whole discussion, which I don't know if we've hammered it out enough, is equity. Right now, with this NES system, we have 85 schools that will not have library services. But the rest of the campuses will, and their, and their students will thrive, and they will have access to information, but not in these schools that are NES or NES aligned. And that is wrong. Wrong, wrong. Well, Miss Deborah, now the superintendent said that the the kid, the books can stay, and the kids can get the books on an honor system, right? They they so they they still have access to the books. So what do you what what are you saying when you say there's no equity there? I've seen some pictures of these libraries. In some cases, the bookcases have books that are pressed against the wall. And you can't even get to them. Hmm. Not, uh, you've lost all your organization. Like, well, I want a book on, you know, engineering. Where's that? You know, you have no one to help you find it. Uh, we have no one to advise you. It's just going to be, you know, happenstance if a kid gets the, the right book at the right time. But in a, in a library, that's what a librarian is focused on getting the right book to the right kid at the right time. And they're a mess. The rooms we've seen, full, the former libraries, full of small desks, books very much on the periphery. Uh, they are moving furniture and boxes of books out of the libraries. It is chaos. Well, it sounds like it's chaos. It, it, I, I, in, in doing some research on the story, I ran across the orientation, uh, teacher orientation meeting that was at the NRG. And 
that was that was the word that all the news stories said. It was chaos in there. I see police officers milling around trying to talk to teachers. I'm like, I don't think that's how a teacher orientation is supposed to go. I, I'm I'm not sure. So chaos seems to follow this guy around, but I think that's intentional, right? And it goes back to what Ms. Newsom was saying about um, denying, systematically denying people, particular people, opportunities. And I, 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 so let me ask you this. How can we fight this? How can the community rally to say, no, this is, this is not what we want. How, how do how does the community in Houston fix it? And how do people outside the community of Houston assist you in fixing this? We have heard from uh, professional organizations. Uh, we've heard from uh, local foundations. Uh, we are hearing more and more from uh, parents. I think parents are key here that when you know what your child is not receiving, then you're better able to go to the powers that be and say, this is what my child needs as well. Because one of the things that happens in a well-resourced and a well-staffed library is that the personnel, the educator in that space is able to guide children's selection of materials that are age and ability and content appropriate to say I'm going to turn you loose into this space and let you go choose the book on your own. Students need guidance with that. But not only that, in this age of technology, our students need to be prepared for the future that they will walk into. I have a son who is in artificial intelligence and robotics process automation. And I often say to him, we have discussions about this. And I often say to him, you're putting people out of work, right? And he says, I'm not putting people out of work. I am creating new work for people. And, and you're, I'm in a system that I am seeing that is not preparing our students for that new work. We don't know what it is yet, but we know that it's going to be quite different from what we have right now. And so as we do these kind of backwards moves, we are eliminating opportunity for some people. I used to say to my son, you know what? Somebody's got to work at a fast food restaurant or be on the back of a garbage truck, but is that what you want to do for the rest of your life? We need to give our students options. We do not need to deny them the option to advance and rise above the status into which they were born. Yeah, and you, you mentioned some of my parents, and I'm just going to say this now, whether people do it or not, that's on their own. I know we had a situation. It was not related to libraries. It was related to our safety. And we made a conscious decision as students that we were going to walk out, that we were not going to allow uh, the police department and the school district to tell us that, they can't afford to make sure that we're safe going and coming from school. And, you know, the principal's like, well, if y'all walk out, we're going to kick all y'all out and all that stuff. Okay. So the whole school left 
And as the parents started showing up to, to say, hey, I, my child needs to get back. And why aren't you protecting them? That's the reason why they walked out. After he heard about 20 parents, it was like, oh, y'all can come back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was enough. So and, and, and there were parents lined up. They had taken their day off of work to find out why these kids, their children had to walk out of a school to demand safety. And I think that if the parents in the Houston Independent School District unified and said, hey, not just in the 28 or the 57 affiliated, all the parents need to say, this is not acceptable. It's like, I think there's a better way for you to get to your goal without sacrificing any of our children's education. So I'm just kind of curious. You you mentioned that there's some groups that have... has there been any real organized effort to 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 protest and and to and demand that this school board, whether it's appointed by the governor or not, uh, to 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 fix this situation? Yes, uh, about a week ago, we had there was a rally at the administration building, and there were parents and many organizations were present. Legislators were there, and uh, there was some great signs and uh, kids, you know, stepping up and saying how important libraries were, parents. It was, it was a great connection. And uh, we, we, are, we had a read-in last week before the board meeting, and we had over 200 people uh, sitting in the uh, foyer of the boardroom uh, reading. And uh, we're going to, we're looking for more opportunities like that to um, have our say. So if at pe- that board meeting, there were. Go ahead, Ms. Newsom. There was, at that board meeting, there were students who made some very eloquent appeals for uh, a reversal of this decision. And um, there are students who are speaking out. If you watch what is happening with some of the book bands, it's students who are saying, no, we want, we want access to these materials. So and churches, churches oh, yes, and churches. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's very important because the, the 2000 letters from Wheeler Avenue Baptist church saying reinstate the libraries. Yeah. Cause you're going to need that. You're going to need that kind of grassroots support to, to challenge because, you know, if, if people get stuck in this apathy, it's like, well, there's nothing I can do. The most the, the reason why America is what it is, is because the power is within the people. So let me ask you all, whoever wants to do it, 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 how can people get involved with this movement to, to reverse its decision? Is there a set group that's handling that or uh, do they just reach out to y'all or how does that work? Well, Debbie has an organization that's been around for a number of years that people can certainly participate with. And then uh, in terms of reaching out to to the board of managers, uh, individuals can write letters, send emails, um, call, and talk to not only the board of managers and the superintendent's office, but to our legislators as well, Uh, individuals who are very concerned about what is happening, uh, need to, to wake up 
step up and take action. And this, this doesn't mean that you have to be in the streets carrying a sign, okay? But it does mean that you need to reach out and express your discontent with what is happening. And then I'll let Debbie speak to the issue of her organization. So about six or seven years ago, we started an organization called Students Need Libraries in HISD because we were at the time struggling with some principals not wanting libraries or not being supportive of libraries. And that's how we got to be more unequal than equal is because not everybody appreciated the, what the library had to offer. And so we were trying to change that and get increase the staffing and so forth. And last year we had over, uh, well, uh, I know over a million dollars was spent in the libraries in these 28 schools. And, uh, you know, so there was progress being made. So that is, makes it even more difficult because we were working our way back and then to have this hit. Um, and with knowing that how bad Dallas was, you know, we had people travel five hours from Dallas to say, this is, this is not going to go well for you guys. You know, this, this new administration you have, cause we've been there. And, uh, yes. Uh, so we are, we are organized and we're reaching out and we're making connections with whoever we can partner with, but students need libraries. We have a website, we have uh, a Facebook page. We're up to about 800 members on the Facebook page. I think 200 people have joined in the last few days. So is that the name and of the organization? So students need libraries? Students need libraries in HISD. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, ladies, um, let me just say this in closing. Um, as a state legislator, one of my favorite receptions to go to was the Mississippi Librarians Association. They treated us so nice and, and, and you know, and made sure that uh, every legislator understood the importance of libraries. And, uh, you know, for, for a nerd like me, that wasn't hard, but there were some folks that you, you had to work on. And uh, I can say that during my tenure there that the libraries were well-funded. Now, the schools was a whole different issue, but the libraries in the, in the county library systems got what they needed in order to make sure that the public libraries were open and accessible to all the Mississippi's kids. So I, I you know, I greatly appreciate what you do for a living and uh, the fact that you are trying to make sure that there are other people that follow in your footsteps and the commitment that you are involved in to fighting to make sure that every child has a chance to get a full education. So I, I support you and I hope that people listening to the podcast will, will uh, do what they can to assist y'all in this effort. So thank y'all for being on the show. Thank you. And we invite you to the Texas Library Association annual conference as well. Now, when is that going to be? April 2024 in San Antonio. All right. So I got to save up some 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 money so I can get over there. Uh, well, Tom thank you. Hobnog with librarians of all types. All right. That's that sounds like a plan. All right. Miss Newsom <laughs> and Miss Hall, again, thank you for for coming on. And ladies and gentlemen, thank we'll you. catch y'all on the other side.
and so we're back. So uh, let me just close out by saying, uh, again, this is the wrap up of season seven. And when you either go to the momenteric.com website or, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, you can, you know, try to find episodes based on the seasons. That's one of the reasons why I do it like that. So it'd be easier for people to find an episode that they want. If they remember what season it was or what the title is, they can go directly to it and don't have to scroll through like, you know, 52 weeks and, you know, seven years <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, we just, you know, I just broke it down into chapters of 25 each. It goes the first couple uh don't meet that criteria, but you know, after starting really with season three, try to keep it organized like that. So I hope y'all learned something from those sisters that came on about what's going on in Houston. And I hope that people listening to the podcast get involved some kind of way. I think we need to send a message to people that don't take education seriously or don't understand that education is supposed to be about enlightenment and not about training, right? Or subjugation uh, or indoctrination. Uh, that the whole purpose is to allow people to learn and to be able to express themselves. And I like the fact that uh, I think it was Miss Hall that talked about libraries being a sanctuary. I can, I can relate to that. Um, not so much that I was a misfit, but, you know, just reading a book was a sanctuary to me. And I just, you know, it was instilled in me as a young kid, you know, that the best way to keep a secret from a black person was to put it in a book. And I wanted to defy that. Right. I didn't want any secrets, especially when it came to knowledge. And so, you know, and just, again, just reminiscing about seeing my classmates, a lot of them were the same way. That's how we are kindred spirits, not just because we went to the same high school, but how we got to that high school was because we had this, this quest for knowledge, this thirst for knowledge, right? And uh, it's something that should be innate, in every human being, and it should be encouraged, right? So I want y'all to get involved in that fight. If y'all know folks in Houston, Texas, if you, you know, you got friends that have children in that school district, encourage them to engage that school board. I don't care if Governor Abbott handpicked all of them from the seat of his wheelchair. Y'all got to fight these folks because that's insane that, you know, one library closed, let alone 28 or, or possibly 70 or 80 of them, right? It, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense that people think that it's okay to create disadvantages for folks in the area of education. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that that really has been a sticking point with, quote unquote, conservatives for a long time, uh, especially those who advocate states rights, because they 
they just don't want to go to school with us, right? They don't want, and then they don't want us to learn what they learn, right? And we could have got into a whole discussion about the Prager U stuff, and oh my God, it's just, it's just amazing that every day, and we kind of had a side conversation about it off the air. It's just every day, it's just new ways of or creative ways for people to try to oppress other folks, right? So the only the only real avenue that we have is our voice and our vote. And so we can't elect people that want to take over school districts to deny our children education and, and, or even to take away the people that we voted for, right? The people in Houston voted for a board. And then this governor through his education superintendent dismissed the will of the people and got rid of the board. So they could put their own people in to do what they want to do. It's the same thing DeSantis is doing in Florida with New College and just God knows where else these these different struggles are happening. Heck, you got governors in Iowa saying, hey, you can, you instead of going to a library, go to the bar and get a job. Right? Anyway, that's that's that could be a mini episode, <laughs> right? A mini moment. So again, make sure y'all subscribe on Patreon. Make sure that y'all follow the podcast. Make sure you tell people about this podcast. Give it, give it a five star rating. You know, just keep boosting it, because um, we're gonna keep putting this out here and and trying to uh, have intelligent discussions, get the facts out, and motivate and activate people to do something in their communities to make them better. Until next time.